Hi, this is Gary Meese with the case against. This is episode 68. We're continuing to look at the West Memphis 3 case. And we're going to be talking about one of the more interesting aspects of the case, which is what is commonly known as Exhibit 500. I, I may get through with that and move on to a few other things, but uh, basically we were doing, a, I was doing a wrap-up the last time on, on the Eccles Baldwin trial, and uh, the, the, jury found, the jury found them both guilty, and then the jury, what happens in this in Arkansas is they find them guilty and then they come back and they decide the penalty. So it's called bifurcated and I it's kind of, I don't know if it's, I haven't researched it to find out if it, that's how it's done in every state, but, uh, and I doubt that it is, but uh, uh, it's certainly a common practice, widely used. The uh, so it's known as the penalty phase of the trial. During this penalty phase, there was a psychiatric file known as Exhibit 500. And despite what Damien Eccles has said, this was a, a file that had been compiled by the defense on his behalf addressing his mental health problems. And uh, gave a very detailed report, many reports actually, more than 500 pages, which is hence the name Exhibit 500, uh, from Damien's trips to three trips to mental hospitals in the year before he committed the murders and some other related uh, records. Uh, including, you know, counseling sessions and his application for the uh, Social Security designation, which he qualified for very soon. He turned 18 in December of 1992, and within just the shortest amount of time, uh, early, early in... Uh, February, uh, early in uh, 1993, he had uh, applied for Social Security Disability and had gotten approved for that. Uh, usually, the, usually it, there takes a while to get that kind of determination from Social Security, but in Damien Eccles' case, they didn't seem to have a problem pushing that on through. The file uh, was compiled by Inquisitor Incorporated, which was a private investigative firm and that was owned by Ron Lax. And Ron Lax was a private detective. He, he died in 1993 and he, he was portrayed by Colin Firth in the recent dramatized film about the case, the very, very bad and boring Devil's Knot which in turn was based on a book by the Arkansas journalist Marl Everett. Now, Devil's Not Movie jettisoned most of the book. I, basically what you get is you get the bare facts of the case 
and uh, and not and many with many bare facts left out, and uh, and the title has very the the movie has very little to do with her book, other than as I say the it's about the West Memphis Three, and it's presented as you know a, a document docudrama, but it's you know, based on you know true facts as it were and uh a lot of marl everett's book is involved in casting aspersions on john mark byers suggesting that he would be a really good candidate uh to be the actual killer of the of michael moore christopher byers and stevie branch on may 5th 1993 uh now Notwithstanding the fact that John Mark Byers has a very, very, very good alibi for that whole evening. Marl Everett doesn't really care about that. He's, he was an easy target at the time. Uh, the Paradise Lost movies had made him one by presenting him as this, you know, out of control madman. And uh, who would be capable of just about anything somebody who was filled with rage and mind you they were talking to john mark byers whenever his adoptive son had been killed and then his wife had died under mysterious circumstances and he was had gotten into you know things didn't get better for him after after the first movie and they didn't get better for him uh after the filming of the second paradise lost movie he was actually in prison at the time uh, the second Paradise Lost movie appeared in HBO, so he had a lot to be angry about, and he was able to access that. I, I don't think he ever had a real problem with that anyway, but certainly he had a lot to be angry about. And uh, so after the penalty hearing phase started the morning of Saturday, March 19th, 1994, and the jury spent over two and a half hours deciding on the sentencing. They imposed the death penalty on Eccles, who, Eccles, who was perceived as the ringleader. Uh, Jason Baldwin was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. It's worth mentioning the convictions were unanimously affirmed on appeal by the Arkansas Supreme Court, which rejected 44 points of appeal. While the killings and the trials had extensive media coverage regionally in 1993 and 94, Eccles, Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly Jr. were languishing in prison and largely forgotten by 1995. Then, in 1996, the HBO documentary Paradise Lost, featuring extensive footage from the investigation and trials, brought national attention. Filmmakers Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinofsky won praise from the critics for their presentation of what many interpreted as a prosecution based on false premises marked by questionable practices by the police, prosecutors, and the presiding judge, much of the evidence against Eccles in particular, was available to the filmmakers 
but they chose to present a movie somewhat slanted to the defendants. Film was a hit and drew the interest of various social justice advocates and pop celebrities who eventually formed a loosely allied nationwide community known as supporters of the West Memphis Three. The three convicted killers whose defense funds were subsequently heavily funded due to publicity about the case had numerous motions, petitions, and appeals filed. Hearings granted on Rule 37 aired complaints from Baldwin and Miss Kelly that they had incompetent and or insufficient legal representation from their court-appointed defense attorneys. And so the, you know, the point of the Rule 37 hearings is to, to give the them an opportunity to beg for relief from the courts because of the inadequacy of their legal defense. Uh, the first of two sequels, 2000's Paradise Lost 2, Revelations, contained extensive footage of the flamboyant annex of Mark Byers. The innuendo throughout was that Byers was an alternative suspect and hence possibly the yeah, just a second here. And hits possibly the, quote, real killer, unquote. The major problem with that theory is that Byers had an alibi for multiple parties throughout the evening when the boys were killed. What uh, particularly drew attention to Mark Byers was a knife he'd given a member of the film crew that had a trace of blood that was compatible with the blood of both Mark and Christopher Byers. Uh, and Christopher Byers is the adoptive son of Mark. He's not considered to be the biological son of Mark, but they, their, blood, their blood was compatible as far as this testing. Uh, and Byers gave inconsistent information about the knife and how it had been used but there was no evidence that it was involved in the killings, and there's no evidence he was involved in the killings. Byers' initial anger and confusion at the murders <coughs> shared by the other parents was quickly exploited by the filmmakers who recognized that the hulking ponytailed former jeweler was a natural before the cameras and buyers began to bask in their attention. Buyers began transporting, filmmakers began transporting buyers to hearings and wiring in for sound and setting up confrontations between buyers and West Memphis Three supporters. Uh, buyers will play his angry, teeth-bearing Avenger role close all to the hilt and while acting differently away from the cameras um, you can see this in Paradise Lost 2 where he's having a conversation with um, folks from the California film industry, Kathy Baca and Grove Paisley and uh, God bless. And he, anyway, he's having this conversation in the, in the B part of it, and I just can't, I can't come up with the guy's name right this second. But he, um, 
and the B man is the one I'm trying to, and I'm, I'll remember it in about 30 seconds to half an hour. Um, the B part of the KGB remarks to um, buyers that he acts very differently when he's off camera. Well, yeah, he's he's acting out a role. It's it's actually kind of remarkable that it's 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 ended up in the final footage of the movie, and maybe the filmmakers are doing a nod and a wink to somebody who knows. And like the, like others, he was compensated by the filmmakers, but. The other parents quickly stepped away from their involvements for the most part. Um, Pam Hicks, Pam Hobbs certainly got back into it, particularly with part three, but they were, the Moors in particular, were very unhappy with the way um, they had been portrayed in the first movie. and they were outraged, as I think all the parents were, by the display of the boys' naked bodies on the riverbanks, feeling that they had exploited the death of their children for shot value, which Berlinger and Sanofsky obviously had done that very thing. So they, you know, any footage in the later film, and, and Steve Branch Sr. just never participated. You can, he's, you can see him and footage from time to time but he never participated in the the filmmaking process whatsoever except as a bystander of some sort they certainly didn't interview him uh the perpetually cast-wrapped buyers whose job was and suffering from some sort of brain growth or brain tumor and he was heavily medicated well he was paid $500 an hour for the exclusive interviews in the later films. Myers became the target of slurs and insinuations about his supposed role in the murders for over a decade. Despite the alibi, some continued to point to him as an alternative suspect. And of course, since I wrote this, Byers died. He died in a traffic accident this summer near Millington, Tennessee. And I, you know, I, it was a one car accident on a treacherous road. He was driving under uh, not the best of circumstances. Apparently he was trying to get back home to get on his oxygen. So let's assume he wasn't feeling his best. He wasn't supposed to be driving. He wasn't supposed to, that car, he was not authorized to drive. I'm not saying he was driving a stolen car because I don't think the person he borrowed it from considered it stolen, but he certainly didn't ask permission to drive, and he wasn't supposed to be driving. <coughs> and I don't know, and I'm not sure what the circumstances were as far as his, you know, medically perhaps he wasn't supposed to be driving. That's quite possible. Uh, you know, maybe there's some legal reason. Maybe he had his driver's license taken away or restricted for some reason. I, d- I don't know. 
anyway, he he become a he'd become an alternative suspect, and supporters really piled on Mark Byers. They uh, some of them demanded that alleged bite marks on Chris Byers' body be compared to bite marks from Mark. Now, Byers' teeth were pulled due to multiple dental problems. His dental records did not match the bite marks. And we say bite marks were very a very popular form of forensic science uh, after the conviction of Ted Bundy. There's a lot, a lot of circumstantial evidence, but very, very little uh, evidence, uh, you know, crime scene evidence that tied uh, Bundy to any any of the killings. In fact, the, the case was almost wholly circumstantial, and then they came up with um, these teeth marks that were found on victims from Florida Dr. Suverin, who's one of these forensic scientists that seems to appear, also appears in the on the record in this case, he um, he testified to Bundy's involvement in these killings based on these teeth marks. And he gave some opinions on on uh, the teeth marks in the West Memphis Three case. Didn't tie Mark Byers to it. Um, now, what's happened since is that bite marks has been largely discredited as a forensic tool. It's it's one of those tools that you know back when they had less perfect means of uh, linking uh, evidence from the crime scene to specific suspects. They would fall back on things like shoe treads, tire marks, bite marks, you know, some of the five, you know, things like the fibers which had shown up in a number of cases. Those are very imperfect means of linking somebody to a crime. Um, it really requires a certain amount of interpretation, particularly bite marks requires a certain amount of interpretation. And the, bite, the supposed bite marks that were found on these bodies have been uh, ascribed to all sorts of things. The original medical examination did not find bite marks. It did find an assault from what appeared to be uh, something that would look very much like the Rambo knife that was found in the lake behind Jason Baldwin's house. And, of course, at the time the examination was made, that, that knife wasn't in hand. Uh, there were imprints of, for instance, on the thigh that looked like, 
uh, be in, you know imprints from the the metal handle of the knife, for instance, that would have left a, an imprint on the thigh, and there were a lot and and the scrapings uh, roughly matched the serrated edge of the knife, and of course there were cuts. Later, later the paid experts. And they were very well known and well, I suppose, well respected experts came forward. And while their interpretations of the evidence varied widely, uh, most of them did seem to see some evidence of some claw marks and some bite marks. Now, just because there are bite marks, and I'm not thoroughly convinced that, that you know, when I've seen uh, a lot of the things that are attributed to bite marks or call marks were in fact marks that were left by the killers. Uh, I, I, there's the problem with the idea that uh, this was all just bite marks uh, left by animals is to me the insurmountable problem is that Stevie Branch bled out before he was placed in the water and you know he wasn't perhaps he wasn't quite dead just specifically from that but he had bled out uh, the cause of death wasn't really attributed to loss of blood had multiple had multiple things going on um, beatings uh, just the sheer shock and trauma of what was done to him, including the castration. If that's the right word for that, and I suppose that's, I suppose that is the degloving of the penis, etc., the removal of the testicles. Sounds like castration to me. Sometimes it, people seem to draw a line at referring referring to it in about as castration but it looks like castration to me the and disfiguration of the area and and there were multiple small stab wounds cuts and scrapes that seemed to have come from this knife but um, some the medical experts that they brought forward generally disagreed with that and and I think what was not fully addressed, and some of them did address this, is were all the marks exclusively from animals? All the wounds, you know, were they just placed in the water? I mean, some of them go goes so far to say that you know the 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 damage the the damage to the skulls was were caused by. Warner Spitz seems to think that the wild dogs or wolves pulled uh, the boys out of the water, slammed their heads against tree trunks, and then threw them back into the water because they drowned. And he's saying that these wounds were uh, administered to uh, corpses, including the, the, the skull fractures. Well, and he describes uh, wild animals, dogs, canines in particular, 
shaking and pulling uh, the, I want to say prey, but they're not prey when they're dead. They're the, the shaking the bodies around, uh, and he alleges that they somehow slammed their heads up against trees, and this is this is what caused those wounds. Well, that's the whole thing. The whole scenario is absurd, uh, and it's absurd that Stevie Branch died, was killed by a squad of highly trained killer turtles. Snapping turtles. What does make sense is, you know, there may have, I, I think that it's quite possible and even likely there were, there, that there was some minor animal predation that went on that dirtied, dirtied up the wounds, made it, made it more ambiguous as to the actual causes, though, the, though there are aspects of the wounds, if you, just simply looking at the wounds, an animal wouldn't leave that kind of wound. Little stabbing, little stabbing wounds on the th thighs and buttocks. That doesn't come from an animal. It comes from somebody playing games with a knife. Uh, but you know, I'm not an expert on that. But I, I do know what I see and what I, you know, just me and my lying eyes, I suppose. The case inspired a number of books, uh, the first of which was Blood on Innocent, Blood of Innocence, a workmanlike true crime book written by three newspaper men from the West, from, not from the West, from the Memphis Commercial Appeal, Guy Real, Mark Perisquia, and Bart Sullivan. Uh, that book published in 1995 and now out of print was a straightforward description of the crime, investigation, and trial including a great deal of original reporting on aspects of the case not found in the trial record. You know, I, worked, I was working at the Commercial Appeal at, at, during this time. I worked there all through the, almost all the 80s, almost all the 90s, and up until 2008. I worked there for 28 years. Uh, so I knew, and I worked on the editorial staff. So I knew Guy Riel, Mark Perisky, and Bart Sullivan. They're all good reporters. Riel was more of an editor than a reporter, though he'd done some reporting. He certainly knew how to do it. And per Perisky was their star investigative type reporter for any number of years. So uh, Blood of Innocence is it rapidly, you know, some of the information was rapidly overtaken by the full presentation of facts. It's still a worthy read with a lot of good information in it. A lot of the supporters don't like it because if you just simply read that book, you get the impression that the West Memphis Three killed these three boys. I, I personally think that's the correct impression. But, you know, they didn't have an agenda. That they didn't have an obvious agenda in 1994 and 1995 when they were working on this book. 
Now, in 2002, a longtime reporter for the Arkansas Times alternative newspaper out of Little Rock, Marl Everett, released Devil's Knot, a true story of the West Memphis Three. <coughs> the book had several main themes, that the investigation was fueled by irrational fears of the occult, that his history of petty crime and domestic problems made Mark Byers a likely suspect, and that the West Memphis Three were unfairly prosecuted by the police, prosecution and courts over such concerns as wearing heavy metal t-shirts and having odd hairstyles. The information in Devil's Knot heavily depended on the perspectives of defense lawyers, defense investigators, and West Memphis Three supporters. Oral Everett particularly dwells upon her idea that, uh, that she has the idea that somebody committing a crime for the perp for occult purposes is just absolutely unbelievable. Well, people have been committing crimes for religious or spiritual beliefs throughout history. There, <laughs> there have been. Europe was racked by any number of wars that were and with tremendous bloodshed thousands and thousands and thousands of people killed over many many years over religious conflicts in a certain sense the inquisition well, the church had, and this church and the state essentially had all the power, and the accused witches had very little. The Inquisition, or, or heretics, they weren't just witches, heretics and whoever else they uh, tortured, executed, prosecuted. Uh, all those, the things that happened there were done on the basis of religious belief. People kill people on the basis of religious belief. And many of the people who kill people on the basis of religious belief are much less fanatical than Damien Eccles. Now, police have been widely criticized by the supporter community for not interviewing the parents of the crimes, uh, parents of the victims more extensively. Uh, and, you know, they particularly now cite Terry Hobbs as being questioned lightly by the police. <coughs> Investigators for the defense, as well as Leverett, however, made no discernible attempt to investigate Hobbs, who's now their favorite suspect, prior to the trials or years afterwards. His supposedly suspicious activities and supposed lack of alibi received little to no scrutiny until a single hair from one of the shoelace bindings was found to be a possible DNA match for Hobbs in 2007. Uh, the hair's DNA was a potential match for about 1.5% of the population, including possibly Hobbs, 
but none of the three killers. Now, I mentioned briefly that uh, Marl Everett spends many pages describing John Mark Byers' prior domestic troubles prior to his marriage to Melissa, uh, describes his ups and downs of his career as a jeweler and uh, also and his professional problems of one sort or another. Many, many pages on all this and devotes nothing but just a few brief mentions to Terry Hobbs. And that was the extent of her investigation. But people cite that book as, you know, the book to go to. Well, it just simply isn't. It's tremendously biased for one thing. And look, the, the main thesis of the book is simply demonstrably wrong. And was at the time. It's dishonest. It's unethical. Now, Terry Hobbs has said the three boys were in and out of his house frequently, and if the house, the hair was his, its presence was likely the result of a secondary transfer to a shoelace, and they, the, this particular shoelace was used to tie up Michael Moore. They're not really sure which shoelaces are linked to which boys. The shoelaces, other than where they, who were they tied with, the shoelace could have been his stepson's, since the laces used to hog tie the boys were mixed up. The single hair in the shoelace did not constitute exonerating evidence for the West Memphis Three. It proved only that this particular hair had no links to them. It proved very little. While its comings and goings on May 5th, 1993, the date of the killings, were not as extensively documented as those of buyers, Hobbs actively participated in the search that evening. Like Byers and unlike Baldwin and Eccles, he would not have had sufficient time to carry out the murders, clean up the site, change clothes, travel back and forth, etc., without being noticed by his friends and neighbors. Hobbs has never been an official suspect. Now, police finally took a statement from Hobbs on June 21st, 2007, about the events of May 5th, in which he recalled searching for his stepson much of that evening. His friend David Jacoby also gave a voluntary statement to West Memphis Police on June 21st, 2007, recalling Hobbs practicing guitars with him before embarking on a search for Stevie. Jacoby then helped Hobbs in the search. Hobbs and Jacoby recalled some events from that evening 14 years before differently, but Hobbs still had a better alibi, as if he needed one, than any of the West Memphis Three killers. And, you know, I've gone over, I'm not going to go over the whole Hobbs alibi thing again. I've done that very extensively, I think at least twice now. But basically, if, if, he, if he's hanging out with David Jacoby, and Jacoby's description, since I wrote this, Jacoby has appeared on, uh, 
he, he appeared on the Bob Ruff special on Oxygen, and he gave a couple of extensive interviews to Ruff's podcast. Uh, you know, both roughly in a, you know, really one long interview probably, but two long sessions, both about an hour or more, where he describes searching that evening. Uh, it wasn't some sort of quick perfunctory search when he was with Hobbs, according to his own description. It would have taken some time. They were driving very slowly, very methodically through the neighborhood, looking for any, the three boys, and Stevie in particular. Uh, Hobbs was in and out of his home. Uh, Jacoby uh, can't pinpoint the times very well at all, but he says that uh, Hobbs could have left his home as late as 6.30 after practicing. If you take the timeline, Hobbs showing up at his house about 5.15, 5.30 and playing guitars with him and hanging out till about 5.15 or 5, 6.30. Then Hobbs leaving, coming back again, picking up Jacoby, riding around with him for 15, 20 minutes, dropping him off leaving again, coming back again after a while, picking up Jacoby again, driving around, dropping him off, then coming back again, picking up Jacoby, and and about the time it was really getting dark, about 8.15 that evening, they're over around the area of uh, the end of Goodwin on uh, close to where Robin Hood Hills is. We know... Uh, the police were called about 8 o'clock when things were really getting dark. Buyers called. Uh, been calling, but the police came and took a report. And all three boys were reported missing at that point. But the official report had uh, Christopher Byers as the mention. The official, uh, Dana Moore, Michael's mother, didn't give out an official report until after nine, uh, and neither did Terry Hobbs. It does not mean that the police were that the boy, fact that the boys were all three boys were missing had not been reported to police at that point. And I will say that you know this wasn't a cause for tremendous panic for anybody up to that point. Pretty much to that point. Uh, the only one who was really panicking about this apparently was John Mark Byers. Uh, the other other two parents that were heavily involved, Dana Moore and Terry Hobbs, were obviously distressed. They were looking for the sons. They were upset about this. They were out much later than usual. However, police routinely get reports of kids staying out a little too late it wasn't dark it wasn't quite dark boys have been known to lose track of time go off playing someplace not come back until much later than the time they're supposed to uh, i know i did that as you know i did that as a child i mean i 
I remember wandering off from the front yard when I was about four and getting lost somewhere in the neighborhood and being gone for, to me, it seemed like a really long time. Being chased by a dog and all sorts of other stuff. And, uh, you know, and then finally making it back home. And my mother, my mother did realize I was gone and she was upset about it, but it wasn't that unusual for me to be out of her sight, even at that age. These are much older boys. It was a different era. And it was a small neighborhood. Different era, different town. I'm not saying it's the same thing, but it's not unusual for boys to not be where they're expected to be. And these boys generally were pretty good about doing that, so the parents were concerned. Uh, Meanwhile, you know, now that Terry Hobbs had become the acceptable alternative suspect, Mark Byers, who'd long been accused by Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles of being the killer, you know, they're stating he's a, they're 100% sure he's the killer in Paradise Lost 2, I believe. I don't think that, I don't think the footage was in Paradise Lost 3, Paradise Lost 2, could be wrong. Um, but they were, they were openly blaming John Mark Byers, uh, they dropped that, and now they were blaming Terry Hobbs or Baldwin at this point, realized they'd overstepped themselves with blaming buyers, and he has been more reluctant to come forward blaming Hobbs, basically saying he doesn't want to accuse anybody unfairly until all, you know, all the facts are in. No, but John Mark Byers not only got a pass from the supporters as an alternative suspect, for the most part, he became a supporter. <coughs> Byers began claiming the West Memphis Three were innocent and pointing to Hobbs as a suspect. He made peace with Eccles and Leverett. A third Paradise Lost movie, Paradise Lost 3, Purgatory, was originally scheduled for release in the autumn of 2011. While in post-production, the three killers were set free, prompting a delay in release to January 2012 to allow footage of the release to be incorporated into the film. Ultimately, extensive publicity and new DNA evidence had brought an order from the Arkansas Supreme Court in November 2010 on evidentiary hearings that would consider the case in light of the DNA evidence and allegations that the Miskelly conviction may have been considered a factor in the decision to convict by the Baldwin-Eccles jury. Meanwhile, Dr. George Woods, acting on behalf of the defense, stated in a 2001 affidavit I don't have to apologize here. I was looking at this and I thought this was <coughs> this was from Exhibit 500. I've done exhi- I did Exhibit 500. I've not done Dr. George Woods as extensively. This is part of what I I, I did use some of his statements earlier in the, for the first book, uh, particularly regards Eccles' childhood. There's information there that just simply doesn't exist 
in any place else that's accessible. Uh, he stated in the 2001 affidavit, this, and again, this is on behalf of the defense, Mr. Eccles has a serious mental illness characterized by grandiose and persecutory delusions, auditory and visual hallucinations, disordered thought processes, substantial lack of insight, and chronic incapacitating mood swings. Mr. Eccles' mental illness made him incompetent to stand trial. The stress, complexity, and adversarial nature of the trial compounded the effects of his mental illness. His grandiose and paranoid delusions left him unable to make rational decisions and grossly distorted his perception of the purpose and possible outcomes of the trial. Mr. Eccles' mental state worsened with time. He developed a psychotic euphoria that caused him to believe he would evolve into a superior entity, would be assisted by similar deities, and eventually would be transported to a different world. His psychosis dominated his perceptions of all aspects of the court proceedings. He developed delusions of reference in which he believed every event or movement, regardless how insignificant, was a potential sign that the deities were attempting to show him the gateway, the pathway to the other world where he would join other entities like himself. As a result, Mr. Eccles was extremely hyper vigilant, and anxious, end quote. Now, concerning his interview with Eccles in prison years after Eccles had been convicted, Dr. Wood said, Mr. Eccles presented as a neatly groomed, adequately nourished, healthy man of his stated age. He was oriented to person, place, date, and context of interview. After his confinement on death row at the age of 19, he converted to Buddhism. His appearance was consistent with the traditions of some Buddhist sects. His head was shaved and he wore a necklace made of wooden beads. Mr. Eccles was soft-spoken, polite, and cooperative throughout the interview. End quote. Now, such was the public face that Eccles presented to the media while in prison. Thoughtful, polite, carefully spoken. Psychist, psychiatrists who have studied sociopathy and psychopathology extensively refer to this seemingly harmless and even pleasant facade as the mask of sanity. Dr. Woods continued, Mr. Eccles showed signs of a mood disorder. His affect was generally flat and constricted, though he became animated and more expressive on several occasions. In some instances, his affect did not match his thought content or the content of the interview, but on the whole, these domains were consistent. Mr. Eccles denied persistent hallucinations, but did acknowledge hearing intermittent noises or voices. His responses suggested both his insight and judgment continued to be compromised by his mood disorder. <coughs> he denied fixed delusions or, and homicidal or suicidal thoughts. Now, that was the assessment after Eccles had been 
had spent years in prison, and the assessment was he still showed signs of a mood disorder that affected his insight and judgment, and that he heard noises or voices from time to time. Dr. Woods continued, During the second day of interviewing, Mr. Eccles had difficulty concentrating, which is consistent with dissociation. He lost his train of thought, and there was marked delay in his responses. When asked what he was experiencing, he said certain questions caused him to relive the experiences being discussed. Hmm, I wonder what experiences those might be. There is a long-standing history of an extremely chaotic and impoverished childhood that left Mr. Eccles with very low self-esteem and poor coping skills. He was exposed to chronic psychological maltreatment. He developed symptoms of extreme anxiety at a very early age, very young age, and had virtually no compensatory influences. End quote. In other words, Eccles was far more mentally ill in childhood, teen years, and adulthood than the average adolescent with teenage angst. He was raised by parents with deep psychological problems of their own. While the dysfunction in the Eccles household was often noted, the family was close-knit in its own way. Uh, Jack Eccles and Damien's birth parents continued to express concerns about their son long after he cut ties with them. His sister and his mother have continued to speak of their support and their hopes for his eventual exoneration, despite having little or no contact with him. And I, perhaps there's there are conversations going on that we don't know about, but based on their social media accounts, I would say that Eccles is still totally, almost totally out of touch with his mother his sister Michelle, his father. Eh, should have turned the phone off. His father, in fact, his father was apparently quite upset by a comment Eccles had made on one of his postings on Facebook about uh, being poorly provided for as a child with Mr. Hutchison saying that he, Eddie Jack, Eddie, he's not Jack, Eddie Joe Hutchison saying that, uh, you know, he worked really hard to provide, you know, a good upbringing for Damien Eccles, which frankly is probably a gross exaggeration but the man did try to hold down jobs apparently and wasn't very good at it but he did try um, and he wasn't around for much of Eccles childhood because that his divorce from his mother so he if he's saying he did what he could well perhaps that's true um, as Dr. Woods reported, despite its many problems and limitations, Mr. Eccles' family has remained supportive and concerned for his well-being. That was in 2001. 20 years, almost 20 years later, it's still true. 
Eccles did not reciprocate, reciprocate their concern. Um, did not go into Exhibit 500 as I promised, but I did get in some other stuff. <coughs> anyway, that is it for today. I'm getting down to uh, the last episodes, probably in the West Memphis 3 case, and we'll see where we go from there. I would say I probably have four or five more episodes to go to wrap up the book and I've got some supplemental things that I uh, materials that are interesting and relevant to the case that I didn't go into extensively because there's I, the book was already long enough and they're perhaps not directly relevant but I think they're relevant enough that they should be looked at and considered and then uh, that'll take some further preparation on my part when this wraps up. Not a great deal, I don't think. Most of it's somewhat self-explanatory. Um, that's it for now. Stay well. Hopefully this COVID stuff is going away where you are. Uh, I'm getting a little touch of cabin fever from time to time, but uh, I'm doing okay uh, here on the banks of beautiful Rotten Bayou. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks.